you know, one of one of the best people in startups is Brad Feld, who, who started Techstars. He feels like this is a bit more like uh, 2000 than it than it is 2008, 2009, and I think that's true. And that's because there's like a generation or two of people that have come out of of university and uh, have never experienced a downturn. Arguably, ex you know, all of their experiences in one of the biggest and longest bull markets, their entire context is everything is like up and to the right. <laughs> and so, you know, now it's not up and to the right anymore. So it's kind of a wake up call. Welcome to International Business Today, where we discuss the most critical topics in international business with today's top academic experts and thought leaders. I'm Paula Kellajuri, professor in the International Business and Strategy Group at Northeastern University's DeMore McKim School of Business. Today's topic is by popular request. We heard from many who asked to know more about launching, operating, and investing in startups during this shaky economy. And you wanted to learn about this from the inside. There is no better guest for this topic than my favorite serial entrepreneur, Andy Palmer. Andy is the co-founder and CEO of Tamer and has funded or founded over 100 companies through his seed fund, Coa Labs. He has been awarded Angel Investor of the Year and Entrepreneur of the Year and a lot of accolades I don't have time to talk about, but it is my great pleasure to introduce Andy Palmer. Andy, welcome to International Business Today. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here with you. This is this is such an interesting time to be talking about this, right? The economy is a mess. Mm. We are have high inflation, low unemployment, the market is really volatile. Yet you're out there in a pretty big way saying that this is an opportunity for would-be entrepreneurs. Can you Tell us a little more about that. You bet. Well, you know, we've seen these cycles before and uh, there's always uh, great times and, and lean times. And uh, oftentimes what we see is that when companies are started during a downturn, the people that are starting those companies, the entrepreneurs, are really mission driven and really committed to whatever it is they're doing. They're not caught up in a lot of hype or an irrationally positive economy. They really want to be starting something from scratch. So the character of these startups and the entrepreneurs that start companies during times like this almost always are the kind of character it takes to survive and thrive in the long term. So we love backing companies during times like this. Really? And do you look for something, I know you said certainly character and, and passion, is there something else you're looking for, especially during this kind of an economy? Yeah, the, the, uh, the capital efficiency. You know, I, I really believe in capital efficiency. And, you know, it's tempting sometimes for these companies that raise a lot of venture capital to spend like crazy. But uh, almost always the best companies that, that I invest in or that I help found are really focused on making sure they get the most out of every single dollar that they spend. And so when you're starting in lean times, when things are more difficult, there's just an eye towards capital efficiency that, that matters a lot. It's uh, almost impossible during times like this for companies to raise a bunch of money and spend like drunken sailors. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. true. And you're able to see that as a seed, pre-seed investor. You're able to 
to assess that. In? Yeah, and, and and again, one as an investor, it's much easier to see that uh, during times like this because there's less noise. When times are good and there's lots of money flowing and lots of people are interested in being uh, entrepreneurs, um, it's tough sometimes to see which ones really have the character and are really committed to it versus you know who's you know sort of got everything that it takes to get through the, in the long term. Mm-hmm. So it's this you know delicate balance of like sifting through all the noise and there's just a lot less noise during tough times. And you've you've been through this before, mm, right? Yeah. The, the internet crash in 2000, yeah. the, the housing crash in 08. Yep. Is it different this time? I mean, it feels so volatile. Is it does it feel different? Yeah, you know, one of one of the best people in startups is Brad Feld, who who started TechStars, and you know, I heard Brad the other day say that he feels like this is a bit more like uh, 2000 than it than it is 2008, 2009, and I think that's true, and that's because there's like a generation or two of people that have come out of of university and uh, have never experienced a downturn. Arguably, you know, all of their experiences in one of the biggest and longest bull markets, uh, you know, in history as we've seen it. And so their entire context is everything is like up and to the right. And so, you know, now it's not up and to the right anymore. So it's kind of a wake up call uh, for a lot of folks. And uh, again, when that happens, you sort of see people's true character comes out. And so in, in this case, then, experience matters, right? So now you're actually having to look at, to those who have been, lived through it, lived through the 2000 market to, to be able to guide yeah. those who haven't. Yeah, and, and at COA, we really focus on backing first-time entrepreneurs. And so for many of those first-time entrepreneurs, they've never experienced a down market like this. And so they're prone to you know, be looking for guidance and direction of like, what, what do you do next? And uh, the first thing that uh, you know, we, we tell most of our companies is, all right, it's time to scale back. If you have the ability to control your spend, now is the time to crank it back. And if if you have creative opportunities to uh, get cash in ways that you might not have otherwise, um, like go for it. Like put as much cash on the balance sheet as you possibly can uh, to weather the storm. Yeah, yeah, it's such it's such great advice. So, Andy, this is international business today, and when in your world, in the VC world, you know, it seems like for years it used to be that when we talked about raising raising money, entrepreneurs would look very locally. It was a hyper-local mm. activity. But in the past decade, that seems to have changed. And we're not just, you know, we're here in Boston, we're looking, at, looking to Cambridge. It's we're here in Boston looking around the world for investors. What have you seen and, and what describe that change? Yeah, well, it's, it's a really fascinating change in the last 20 years, especially here in Boston, because uh, one of my really good friends and mentors, uh, Peter Barris, who's the chairman over at NEA, when he took over NEA back in the in the late 90s, he's, he, he was kind of anticipating that there'd be sort of a bifurcation in venture that you'd have over time uh, a small number of very large uh, uh, international venture firms like NEA has become and Sequoia. Koya and Andreessen Horowitz. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are massive, massive funds with huge amounts of resource. And they operate, you know, in all the best startup communities all over the world. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have a lot of smaller uh, 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 funds that were focused on either a per- certain stage or a certain industry or a certain hypothesis. And um, I think that that's happened. And it's especially acute here in Boston, because in Boston, we had a lot of midsize regional generalist kind of 
of funds. And so as that change has occurred in venture and the distribution of venture funds, um, we've lost a lot of, you know, those old midsize regional funds. And instead, what we've got is a population of much earlier stage funds, which I think is aligned to our community here in Boston. This is a great place to birth companies. Like we have an amazing quantity of intellectual property at all the universities in Boston, especially Northeastern. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but um, we really, you know, have seen that the the mix of ent- of uh, invested capital in Boston has leaned a bit t- more towards the earlier stage, seed and pre-seed, as mm-hmm. you have these specialized funds. And that's really good for our, for our community here. And when it comes time for those companies that have been seeded or pre-seeded by more, the more local uh, funds uh, to raise their Series A capital, they think of it not as like going to the usual, typical Boston Series A venture investors, but rather they think about it as at least a national uh, search for, for their next round of capital. And so it's easy to get on a plane and go to New York or go to California. And a lot of those investors, uh, like the NEAs and Sequoias and Andreessen Horowitz's of the world, they're used to investing in Boston and they come here quite frequently now. So so venture capital has become less local, more at least national, if not global. And But this this early, early stage capital is very, very hyper-local. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's so interesting. You know, it's both the idea of a certain mentality around um, raising the money, but also the entrepreneurs themselves. Mm. And I know you differentially invest in women and immigrant-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. You differentially invest in healthcare tech, which mm-hmm. is which is great. You know, um, is there something common among the spirit of the entrepreneur that you see that you try to invest in that you're looking for? So it's not just that fiscal conservative yeah. approach to or passion, but is there is there something you're looking for in a would be entrepreneur? Yeah, for me, the you know this ability and willingness to overcome all odds and to set expectations really high is sort of a core principle. And oftentimes, uh, as as we started investing in underserved communities, mostly women, immigrants, and people of color, it, it was remarkable how. Um, uh, much drive there was, you know, and this is almost always sort of notable as in the immigrant community, you know, and, you know, amongst, you know, uh, young entrepreneurial women, because like they're, they're, they're doing whatever it takes to succeed. And, uh, uh, it, it really was a massively underserved group of entrepreneurs. And, you know, we love investing in in underserved communities to help, you know, do whatever we can to empower them. But the reality is they build amazing businesses. And so the financial returns have been remarkable in investing and backing these folks. And I think that's becoming mainstream now in investing that, you know, it feels uh, less and less like impact investing or something special. And it's just backing the best entrepreneurs and a lot of them happen to be women immigrants and people of color <laughs> yeah well as a as a child of an immigrant we learn to be a little scrappy right when you, <laughs> right. When you don't have enough you you learn to be exactly with uh, what's available i right? believe it. again back to the scarcity creates clarity you know like the more capital efficient companies are in the early stages the better okay what if somebody had that mentality right they they're sort of a would-be entrepreneur but they're currently employed I know you talk mm. a lot about entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, can you 
tell us a little bit about that. So how do I have an entrepreneurial spirit if I'm working for a multinational, you know, working for an organization? Yeah, I think there are a lot of ways to be creative and entrepreneurial, uh, regardless of who your employer is. And this willingness and commitment to do things that other people think can't be done uh, are very powerful. And the most successful folks that I've experienced in, in large companies tend to be those folks that even despite the bureaucracy and kind of the infrastructure that exists in a lot of these bigger companies, that if they, they kind of go for it, and they, you know, do things that other people that are maybe just punching the clock at those companies think are impossible, that, uh, you know, uh, great companies will reward that, you know, very, very, very aggressively. And you don't have to go much, you know, very far into the depths of business school cases to find this stuff, right? The classic example is Jack Welch at GE way back in the day when he started GE Plastics, right? Uh, you know, plastics grew from almost, you know, uh, zero, you know, to, to be one of the biggest divisions of GE because Jack and, and the whole team there thought that they could uh, grow it at a rate that was uh, previously unheard of within GE. And then they started applying those same kind of expectations across the rest of the company. And so inside of a, a large organization, I think the biggest impact that people that are entrepreneurial can have is by setting expectations higher and not just punching the clock or accepting whatever's been done the, 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 the previous year or the previous decade, or in some cases, the previous century, um, but rather setting expectations high and looking to the future rather than sort of uh, sitting on the laurels of the past. Yeah, it's a willingness to say what else could be, mm -hmm. what else could be possible. Exactly, really and of course, I, for me, you know, uh, no better role model in this, in our economy today, I think than, than Elon Musk. I mean, the expectations that he has set, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, changing the automotive industry to electric or uh, landing uh, rockets, you know, uh, back on the ground. I mean, these are things that, that even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people thought were impossible feats. And he's not only accomplished them, but uh, turned all of these things into, you know, a new reality for us. Right. And in, I would say also, though, investing in yourself that you can also make that contribution. Yeah. That's something you and I have also talked about. Yeah, really, for sure. Really critical. So, Andy, you're a CEO of Tamer. And, and I know you, you give us great advice about would-be entrepreneurs who are working in organizations but right now, there's also a lot of layoffs going mm. on. Can you tell us, like, what advice would you give to people who are being laid off, especially yeah. those in tech? Absolutely. Well, it's an interesting time. Like, so, so uh, my first advice is have hope, <laughs> because the reality is the uh, unemployment figures like have never been better. Like, you know, we're Slow. very employed as an overall economy, and so there are a lot of jobs out there now. What's happening is there's lots of layoffs going on, but those layoffs are just adjustments and optimizations that are occurring across the economy. So even though uh, people are getting laid off, they're also finding new jobs very, very quickly. And so, uh, especially for young folks, the way that they should interpret this is there's a lot of change going on and change is always good for people that are less experienced. Um, you know, there are lots of opportunities to slot into new organizations and or new uh, uh, parts of existing 
existing organizations. And so I think it's a great time to be job seeking right now. Again, because, uh, you know, unemployment is so low. There's a lot of demand, especially for young folks. And it's also a great time to be investing back in yourself on those new skills, new, new yeah, talents n- that are needed. Totally. I think that's exactly right. You know, and like I, I'm a big believer in, as you know, you know, uh, continuous education and everyone's career, I think, is better when they view their career as an opportunity for continuous education. Everything they're doing, every uh, job that they take, I think of it as like a tour of duty. And in that tour of duty, it's got a beginning, a middle and an end. And you try and learn as much as you can on every single tour of duty. And, you know, it's less like a, a job that you might hold in perpetuity forever. I think that concept is kind of an art, you know, an artificial construct of the post, in, you know, industrial era. Like people want new projects to work on. They want new challenges all the time. And so um, thinking about your career as a succession of these tours of duty is a much healthier way to view that. And when you when you embrace that, you're like, OK, well, I'm going to have some numbers of tours of duty over the course of some numbers of decades and do all kinds of cool, interesting things along the way, each one sort of teaching you something different and new and being stimulating, again, as opposed to sitting at a desk and turning the crank for for decades. Yeah. And you and I have also spoken about, you know, stay in control of your career, make sure Mm. you're the one guiding it. So even if you are laid off, even if you do have to make the next move, you kind of know where you want to attack next or what skills you need next and what's the next tour of duty, in your words. Exactly. Like, you know, sort of I've learned a lot of this from you, like this this idea that, you know, each person is the captain of their future and each person is sort of capable of guiding where they go. And what we sh- what we really should people should avoid, especially if people are working in big companies, is thinking of their employer in this paternalistic way as if the employer is going to, you know, guide them in some way. Now, maybe that happens in a good way. And a lot of employers want to try and help. But the reality is if you, you know, don't depend on wh- whoever your manager is or whatever company you're working for, but rather you take control of your own destiny, then it kind of doesn't matter if you've got a good manager or a bad manager or a good company or a bad company. You will always be in control and you'll be able to guide your personal ship into whatever tour of duty makes the most sense for you next. Yeah, it is so critical that we don't relinquish control to our company over what's coming next in our careers. We stay in control of that. And it might be within that company, but we still have to be be driving. Part of it is a reflection of American society. Like we've always believed in rugged individualism, you know, and so I think that that principle of rugged individualism is very, very uh, appropriate and well applied when people guide their careers. Um, You know, don't just, you know, drop into a big company and put it on autopilot because who knows where you'll end up. You know, what's interesting about individualism. It's one of the cultural values Mm. that we're starting to see worldwide Mm -hmm. increase among well-educated people around the world. So it's not just an American thing anymore. Totally. It's kind of of another interesting piece. Okay, another very different question, Um, sort of the headlines of today, right? Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, there's a, a, a lot of rough times, right, for banking. Mm -hmm. How is this affecting both sort of the the VC world, but also how is it affecting your portfolio of companies? Yeah, it's really remarkable. And and SVB has been an instrumental part of uh, all the innovation that's occurred in our economy in the U.S. over the last 30 or 40 years. And so uh, in some ways, it's, you know, it sort of rocked us all to the core. Like we've really kind of, it's been a bit of a wake up call, but also a little bit healthy. Um, You know, how these early stage companies are financed and how you bank to them and how you support them financially is a really important part of the equation. 
And in some ways, this change has sort of brought, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and, you know, the, the mojo in, in the Bay Area a bit closer to New York and Wall Street and also brought New York and Wall Street a bit closer to, to the Bay Area. And I think that's a really healthy thing. Um, that the more transparency and openness there is between these different cultures of all the kind of the muddied interests in New York and uh, uh, all the entrepreneurial and and uh, new new money sort of interests on the West Coast, I think the more those kind of like work together, the better off we are. And you've definitely seen this, right? You know, as you know, Silicon Valley banks gone through a really hard time and come out the other end. One of the remarkable things that I've seen is a lot of the the leadership in the more traditional banks coming together around Silicon Valley Bank to help make them successful and recognizing that they play such an important role in our innovation economy that um, it's really, and it's even, in, it's an international thing. Like uh, the changes at SVB um, have had an impact, you know, not only on, uh, you know, the banks in the United States, but even now Credit Suisse and a whole bunch of, so, you know, we're all connected um, in this world. And the innovation that happens sort of spreads all, all over the world. Uh, again, Elon Musk is a great example. You look at, you know, what's happening in automotive and in the space industry, aerospace industries all over the world, um, all very connected to the bar that Elon Musk has set. And also, like on the banking side, like when one change happens somewhere, like it reverberates throughout the rest of the world. And of course, this is also true when you have, you know, a geopolitical conflict. You look at yeah, what's been happening in the Ukraine and how difficult that is. But you also see a lot of, you know, uh, forces coming together from all over the world to support the Ukraine and what they're going through. And so... Oh, more and more, we are all interconnected. And this is true financially. It's true entrepreneurially. Um, you know, at Tamer early on, we had this experience where a lot of our customers is very, very large companies. And the, the traditional rule of thumb in early stage software companies is you stay focused on one geography. But many of our customers were doing projects that were all over the world. And so we were dragged, you know, sort of kicking and screaming initially into being a global company out of the box. But I think that's more the norm now that, you know, startups have to kind of think globally uh, out of the box rather than, you know, just sort of staying local. Yeah, it's, a, it's another attribute to look for mm -hmm. among your future entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. The best cultural agility. Truly. <laughs> and, and this is a huge advantage, I think, that young entrepreneurs have um, in our innovation economy is that many of them are sort of global by default. Like, I mean, you look at, I mean, the, the talent that we see coming out of Northeastern all the time, I mean, there's one of the most diverse, geo-diverse communities I've ever experienced. And the uh, cool part about Northeastern is when they come out, they've got, not only are they diverse uh, uh, in terms of geography, but um, their, their experience is so extreme. Many of them have worked for a number of great companies doing really cool things. And so, coming, graduating at, at 21 or 22 years old, um, they had way more experience than I ever did at that age, that's for sure. Right. I know we're, we're part of the international business group and our students come out with multiple international experiences, multiple co-ops, different diverse, different diverse industries, geographies. It is pretty impressive. Very so cool. Good things to look for. So let's let's talk about advice. Let's wrap this up with some advice. Okay. Um, let's do first advice to those those who are investors like you. What mm -hmm. advice would you give to your fellow investors for this kind of an economy? Yeah, well, uh, this is you know these moments are, are very critical, right? Like uh, I didn't, uh, you know. 
I appreciated my my business school experience uh, up at Dartmouth, um, but maybe the most important lesson I learned was buy low and sell high. <laughs> and so right now, prices are pretty low. So it's a pretty good time to buy in to the market, even though emotionally it may be the most difficult to sort of lean in. Um, now is the time where you want to sort of buy equities uh, and, and lean into, you know, potential upside, um, even even though it's hard emotionally. And so that, you know, I think is, is the, you know, the most important thing is that, you know, sort of you can't always like uh, let the uh, macro economy sort of influence your emotions and your actions. You have to do what's important to you and kind of believe in yourself during times like this. And uh, I think it's the time for for people, especially entrepreneurs, to kind of double down on themselves. Yeah. And as they do that, I think it's 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 also, you know, really, really valuable to, to again, have this capital efficient perspective. Like, don't view this downturn as a... Um, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a problem, but rather view it as an opportunity and an opportunity to get more efficient, to get more productive and to help limit the noise, filter out all the noise and focus on the things that are the most important to do. Yeah, have have courage and courage. Make smart decisions. Yes, <laughs> as, right, as, exactly. As yes, and so that the the final piece of advice then for the would be entrepreneur out there who's listening, Tiffany. Yeah, so I, my my favorite thing with uh, especially young entrepreneurs is to you know really you know focus on your mission. Like um, uh, anytime I'm working with new young entrepreneurs, and I ask them. What's your primary motivation? What are you interested in? When they respond, well, I want to make money. I'm like, mm, that's not a great reason to start a company from scratch, right? The the odds are, if you look at the the risk adjusted, you know, returns on startups, it's pretty tough. Um, you know, you may be better off like going into finance or working at a hedge fund or something uh, if all you really care about is money. But if you're mission driven, you care about building things and you care about making the world uh, a better place and also creating a fulfilling experience for yourself where you can look back and say, man, I am really proud of what I built and I'm proud that what I've built satisfies customers or makes makes money for my shareholders. Um, that's the most important thing. Um, and and this, this is where, again, you know, I think people like Elon Musk are a great role model. Uh, you know, there, there's always lots of money involved whenever whenever Elon's doing stuff. But the reality is what, what motivates him is his mission. Um, he's trying to make us an interplanetary species. He's trying to improve, you know, the way that the automotive industry, uh, you know, is, uh, has a carbon footprint. And so these motivations, these visions and missions, like that, that's the real motivational, that's the important stuff to focus on. Wow. It's such great advice, you know, have purpose. Mm, have purpose, have purpose yeah. And Andy, this was terrific. Thank you so much for being a part of International Business Today. Thanks, Paula. It's been a lot of fun. Great to see you again. Nice seeing you. All right. To our listeners and viewers, thank you for being a part of International Business Today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to it and share it with your network. As always, we'd love to hear from you. 